Turn in the Scriptures to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And as we look into this, we're going to see several different things here, and we're going to take this account with Jesus and Lazarus, and we're going to take our time and walk through it, not just in one sitting. We're going to see, uh, really today, only the death of Lazarus, not the resurrection of Lazarus. And even when you read this, there's a, uh, in chapter 11, verses 17, oh, into like, say, 27, we're seeing about He's the resurrection and the life, and then Jesus weeps, and then we see Him raising Lazarus from the dead, and then there is indeed a plot to kill Jesus. So this chapter is going to take us a moment because I think there's some good stuff here for us to look at. Um, so as we talk about this today, we're not talking, we're going to talk about the death of Lazarus as we read this account. And we're going to just kind of leave it there. And we're going to kind of feel this delay in God's sovereign love. And that's something I want you to see in the text. And I think this is important for us because so often we go, you know, like God is good and God is great and all these things. Um, but we're saying it with the perspective of as long as he's doing it, what I want and how I want it, when I want it. And here you're going to find that that is very disingenuous. And it also puts us before the Lord, and the Lord is the Lord Himself. And He's the Lord by Himself. That's good. Let me say that again. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The Lord is the Lord Himself by Himself. I don't have my amen button. Somebody took it from me. There we go. Praise God. I'll be like, hit me, right? Like, that's it, right? In fact, uh, and so John chapter 11, as we're looking at this, Let's read it. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are, going, and you're, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he taking a rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And there's where we stop. You're like, what? Like, this is like uh, watching uh, 
the Lord of the Rings movies. I remember finding those frustrating. Like you would, this big build up and crescendo of a wonderful novel put to film. And then like there's this big thing. And then it's like, and roll scene credits, go. You know, and you're like, what? We got to know what happens. We got to see this victory. We know that there's going to be something. And I think this is a great place to stop today because we need to understand the full context of the gospel and the full context of the glory of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Every one of us need to be prepared to die. Sobering part of my job, I love doing weddings. I'm, I'm starting to actually love it. I used to not love it. I used to sit there and think, are they going to stay married? Are they going to stay married? Are they going to stay married? You know, and now I've done some things where I do premarital stuff, and I'm like, they're going to leave room for Jesus and stay married right? Which I don't know. We'll see how it works. But I've gotten better at that. But a sobering thing is every time I do a funeral, and as every time I stop and I think about it, because it reminds me in those moments, all of us are going to die. The thing about it is how believers are supposed to view death differs than how those in the world view death. And what we believe about it and all the things that are different, we hold to the hope of Scripture and the rock of Christ. And so this is important because you go, you know what, how devastating is this issue of death? Every day in the world, 150,000 people die. Think about that for a minute. Today, 150,000 people will die. And Jesus reigns from eternity to eternity, and in all His sovereignty and wisdom and goodness, He is able to control, explain, and set right all losses. One of the things I want you to see out of this text today, and I want to give you a cross-reference for it, is this idea that God cares for you. God cares for you. And you go, well, when I read that text, it looks like he's being irresponsible. It looks like he is delaying on purpose. And you are right, he is delaying on purpose, but he is definitely not being careless. He is being uh, caring for these disciples so that they may believe things about him that you and I need to know today are very important to believe about Jesus. In fact, Matthew talks about this in chapter 10, verse 29. It says this, our, and this is Jesus speaking, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of value than sparrows. Now some of us men, it's easy for the Lord to keep up with the hairs on your head. I look across the room, and, and, and some of us, I'm in the club, we have a few less. And some of us, have gotten so kind of in the process of it, we just went ahead and committed to the process, and we just you know bald is beautiful, baby. Welcome to 2022, right? Right? I, people are like, yes, so, yes, so the amen button flies again. But the tiniest little insignificant sparrow, Jesus says, it's sold for a penny, and not one of those will fall to the ground. And he's like, are you not more than sparrows? And in this text, we see God cares for you because you know, because how do they react? When Lazarus has uh, falling ill and he is dying, they're literally 
Who, is the, who do they rush to? The illustration is, how, how many of you have a friend who is like of a trade of importance? And what I mean by that is, because uh, all trades are important, we, I'm trying, trying to be that way, but like when someone is sick, but you have a friend who's a doctor, who's the first person you think about calling? A doctor friend, right? You're like, is this normal? Should we go to the hospital? How many of you ever have legal problems and you have a friend that's a lawyer and you're like, man, I don't want to be that guy, but like, yeah, I'm going to be that guy. Hey, hey, bud, I just have a question. Just one quick question. These people know he needs help and who do they think about? Jesus. He has helped so many people. We know he cares. And here's what you're supposed to see on this text. God cares for you. They say, the one whom you love, he's ill. But not only that, does God care for you, the love that God has for you. John, the writer here, is writing this to help us to come to terms in our experience with what the love of God is like for you. What is it like to be loved by Jesus? Love is not a minor theme. In these six verses in the first beginning part, three times we have found this phrase, he loved them, he loved them. He loved them. Yet the stunning, (laughs) look at verse 6 again. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, now some Bible versions say therefore. Every time you ever see a therefore, go back and see what it's there for. Right? Every time you see a so, ask yourself, so what? So, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He got on a donkey and rode there immediately and got in there and touched him. No, he didn't do that, did he? Some people were looking up like, that's not what my Bible says. So he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What is that? What is this? What's going on? And not only that, he goes on verse 14. He tells them plainly that Lazarus has died. And so he is not choosing to rush to get there, to do anything about it. But he waits. Jesus makes sure that Lazarus is dead four days when we look at the account. And you go, what is going on here? Like if if he's loving, why is this organized this way? Why did Jesus behave this way? And some people might say, you know what? I got it figured out, Lee. Jesus knows he's going to raise him. So it's really not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. It's not even really that hard. Like that's how I make sense of that. And I would say, I get it, because I think that's where our brains naturally go. However, I think there's a few things we're not thinking about, so I think that's incomplete. Let me make a point. Lazarus really did die. How do we know he is really dead? He waited, and they buried him. And we're not talking about like the next day, where you could get into a swoon theory. He is dead. There are people that have grieved and said Jesus didn't make it. He's dead. R.C. Sproul said this, I don't fear death. I just fear dying. I don't fear death. I I just fear dying. The process of dying is an intense moment. And, and, And Lazarus has gone through it. 
And then the second thing that I think is interesting to think about here is that John is writing this chapter in 11 and he's intentionally inviting us to see your resurrection in Lazarus. And this is why it's important not to buy on this idea that he knows he's going to raise him and it's no big deal. Lazarus has died, but then number two, our death and resurrection is parallel to Lazarus. Our death and our resurrection, we need to see it as parallel to Lazarus. And why do I think that? If you look at verses 23 down to 26, um, you'll see some things where Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And so when he gets there, he gives them hope that Lazarus is going to rise again. Verse 24, he says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha says that to Jesus. And she's like, oh, I know, yeah, one day when, when the Lord comes, yes, he'll rise again. And Jesus could have uh, said to her, yes, isn't that wonderful news? But instead, he just looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's pointing out this, this moment with Lazarus, who I do love, is going to be an illustration. And the other reason why I think we've got to be careful to not think that this was not um, hard for Jesus is we're going to find in chapter 11, he weeps. Why does Jesus weep? I'm pointing this out to say, this is a painful illustration for Jesus, but a necessary thing because he is saying, I am seeing this. And I think he's sorrowful because he understands what death is. I think he's sorrowful that his friend had to go through that. But I think he's also knowing, yes, I can raise him. So I would say it like this. If we are going to minimize Lazarus' experience, then you better not minimize your own. I mean, it's no big deal. You're going to spend eternity with God, right? I mean, come on. Christians live forever. Our soul lives on. Go. Go ahead, right? No big deal, right? How many of us go, well, hold up. Hold up. I don't want to minimize my experience. Then don't minimize this Lazarus experience. And as we look at this, we have to understand this because it is something for us to think about. How do we think about eternity? How do we live? How do we hold on to this? Why is Jesus delaying? And I think there's a few things I'm going to try to answer today. And so let me ask the question and I'll answer it. What do we take away from this text? What do we take away from these 16 verses? I like the way Spurgeon was commenting about this, about this idea of God getting glory, where he says um, here that in verse 4, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. How can there be glory from death? Spurgeon says this. He says, we should have said that the sickness was unto death, but ultimately to the glory of God. But he who sees the end from the beginning streaks with a grandeur of style which could not be imitated by us. And listen to this. So the Lord speaks of things not as they seem to be, nor even as they are in the present moment, but as they shall be in the long run. I'm going to break that last part down. So the Lord speaks of things not as they seem to be, nor even as they are in the present moment. Is it not true for us? The Lord's moving in a mighty way. Uh, Paul talks about salvation as a, as a past thing. I, I have been saved. I'm in present tense. He says, I'm being saved. And then he talks about it in a future sense. And he says, and one day we will be saved. There's big theology terms that preachers and seminarian things like to toss out. They say this is justification. You've been justified before God. You have been forgiven of all your sins at one moment. Then I have to ask you a question. 
to which me and my buddy Mike were sitting around a fire the other night and thinking about this. Why is it that so many Christians are so busy dying to sin that they never come alive to live for God? If God paid for all your sins in this moment and you are justified before God, stop mourning and continuing to mourn over sin and come alive to live for the Lord. But there's this justification, there's this sanctification, which means God's changing you from the inside out. He's working this thing in your life, and you don't know how to put it together, but as you come to know Christ and you're growing as a babe in Christ, you're growing in holiness, which means you're being set apart to God and as a people of His own possession, your heart changes. You see heavy metal guys becoming teddy bears, just praising God and crying out in worship with tears. And How does that happen? He takes their heart of stone, he gives them a heart of flesh. And then one day, he's coming again, and we get a resurrected body. Scripture talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. How trippy cool is that going to be? And then we who are alive shall meet him in the air. Do you really believe this? Because if you don't, then death is a terrible end and a very dark night that never goes away. Or if we believe this, we'll live life to fullest, we'll run our race as best we could to the glory of God, and then we see this as a crossing of a finish line into a bigger part of eternity that lives way beyond the number of years you had on this earth. I think we get excited about that. We want more of this in our life. And we really don't know where we are about this. So we we fear, we fret. So Jesus talks to us, not as we seem to be right now, but as we shall be in the long run. How does this comfort us? You're like, Lee, tie this together for me because I'm sort of connecting with you, but I don't know if I am. I will tell it to you in one verse. Listen to this. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You ever thought about that? My present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you believe in the glorification part, you can go through incredibly hard times and realize there's joy to be had in Christ. But if we don't believe this, then we're really no different than those that don't have faith in Christ. We're living as if this is all there is. So what do we take from this text? Let me say this. More of God. What is love? Love is doing what you need to do in order to reveal most fully, most durably, the all-satisfying glory of God in Jesus. To be loved is to to be shown glory, the glory of God. Imagine if I, you thought you knew me really well, and then one day I show you something, or or I've watched you fumble over yourself a lot in something. Okay, let me just put something better. I'm just going to fumble up an illustration here. This is just impromptu. Uh, Winston is up here playing guitar, and then one day he catches me uh, 
in the middle of the week, and I'm over here fumbling around with his guitar, and I, this is not really me, by the way, I'm not that good at guitar, but I just start playing out some amazing classical guitar playing that is like five times better than Winston could ever play the guitar in his life. And he is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I was just touching your guitar. And you're like, here's what he would look at me. Why are you not playing on Sundays? Why did you not show me this ability that you have? And I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. Dude, it's glorious. You just played that guitar. I'm like Jack Black there for a minute. Right. Like, you just played that guitar. Amazing. Like, why are you not up there? Why are you not doing this? Have you ever had a friend show you something that's pretty like at a level of glorious that you're like, why do you watch me do this every week when you do it better? This just frustrates me. I, to me, when I think of this, and my connection to this is that life, I know the creator of all things. I know the one who is truly glorious. And when I'm being loved by him is when he's really revealing his glory to me. Because it makes me step back and go, wow, God, and you yet want to still use me? You, you would want to send me? If, if God is not the center of our life, then um, He's not a treasure. And therefore, we don't live a life that treasures Him. And then we're missing the greatest treasure of all things. I believe God's wanting to reveal more of Himself continually to us. Number two, I believe this, joy and satisfaction and love. One of the quotes that I found profound when I was a young teenager was when Piper wrote about this. He wrote a book. He said this, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. If you think about Christianity as a religion, you're missing it. Because religion is this idea of man's attempt to reach and please God. Christianity is about a relationship. God is reaching down to man because man has been separated. Because God is holy, men are not. There cannot be this relationship unless there is some mediator, some go-between, and that is Jesus. That is God reaching down to man through Jesus. So Christianity is not about man measuring up to some holy God, but a holy God stepping down and serving and becoming obedient even to the point of death. Death on the cross, why? So that you could know Him. And when you know Him and you come into this relationship with Him, now you get this idea that you can have satisfaction of truly knowing Him, knowing His peace, having joy, having all these things that He has for you in this relationship with you and Him. And when you're satisfied in that, that's when God is glorified. He's the most glorified when we understand this. But to say it this way, he doesn't look good if we walk towards death and have no delight in him. It doesn't make him look good when we walk towards death with satisfaction. But, but if we walk towards death with satisfaction in the revelation of his glory, he looks good. So quote one guy, he said this, Love is doing whatever you have to do, God or man doing what you have to do through suffering, whatever it costs to reveal the greatest glory for the greatest enjoyment to God's people. And he says, that's what he thinks the logic is of the text. What else do we take away from the text? More of God? Jesus is wanting to reveal more of what he can do to his people. He's like, I've done this. I've waited so that you could see and believe. 
I want you to know that there's joy and satisfaction that, yes, everyone will die, but there will be resurrection in me. And Lazarus, who has died, will show you this. He will model this. Number three, God's glory at the center. What do we take away from this? God's glory should be at the center of our lives. We were born with ourselves at the center. And this text doesn't make a lot of sense if we stay and keep ourselves at the center. You were made for the glory of God, not just the removal of pain. Remember we talked about this in John chapter 1. You weren't made by your job, for your job. You weren't made, right, by your wife, for your wife. But Scripture does tell us we were made by God, for God. And so the only satisfaction in life that's really going to quench the thirst of our soul is surrendering to the idea that we were made for God's glory. We were created and made to know Him, to find joy in Him. Because you go, well, how terrible. And I could see some people that I know that aren't believers go, how, how is this a great truth? I mean, that just shows God is egotistical. No, it's not because He's the one that made us. There is no life apart from Him. And so the world doesn't understand this, and the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, Paul says it's the power of God. That we are set free from ourselves to the one who made life and is the giver of all good things. So often I think what we need to take from this is the idea of grieving, but grieving with hope. And look at the text there, he says at the very end, where Thomas called the twin. I think this is interesting. I was reading about that and how uh, Thomas looked a lot like Jesus, supposedly, as what um, writers would tell us. And they say that if he was going to go back to Judea, uh, Thomas was going to get seen and maybe confused with Jesus and experience some persecution. I think that's kind of interesting. But also, he says this phrase, let us go that we may die with him. That's a weird phrase to me. And one commentator, I think, put put the thumb on this. Thomas utters a cry of loyal despair. He utters a cry of loyal despair. They tell him, Jesus, these people over there, they don't like you. They just picked up rocks and wanted to stone you the other day. And you remember, you had to toss out that psalm and confuse everybody and kind of fade away into the background. And yet here we are going to go back over there. They're going to find you. You're going to be persecuted. But Jesus presses in, and Thomas just says, listen, I'm willing to go. If you can say you can resurrect Lazarus, and apparently you can resurrect us, I haven't put it all together, but I'm just going to follow you. Does anyone else relate to this? I don't have everything figured out about God, but I'm just following God. I'll just follow you, God. We'll do it. Whatever, go. I love you. There's this relationship that we see being played out as Jesus is walking with these guys. He says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now let us go to him. And then Thomas replies with this. So let me ask us some questions today as we look at this text. I think about that missionary that I quoted a few weeks ago. I believe you are not prepared to live a full life until you're really ready to face death. I think the way he said it was, you know, you're not prepared to live until you're ready to die. Have you thought about all these things before? 
Or do you live in denial of it and say, well, it's not good to think about these things? I would disagree. I actually make no money saying this today, but I would counsel all men to think about these things. I think all men should have some sort of either life insurance or something that could guarantee your value of your estate to take care of your sweet wife and kids. Why? Because you never know when you're going to meet the Lord Jesus. So I think you ought to think about that. I think you ought to face it up. I think every man should write his epitaph as well. I think every man should sit down and say, I want to think about that day, and when everyone is standing at my graveside, and they're standing there and they're reflecting on my life, what do I want them to say about me? I think it's a good exercise. I want you to write your own epitaph. And then I want you to think about what, would your, what kind of life are you living and does it lead towards that? Or what kind of changes do you need to make that it leads towards that sort of end? There's a Korean proverb that says, when you were born, the world, uh, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live such a life that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Write your epitaph, man. It'll do you some good. After you've done that, third thing I think every man ought to do is put together all the documents that are necessary for anyone around you to know what is necessary. What bills need to be paid? What are those account numbers? Where do you find it? And then you need to tell your lady where it is. Number four, is there anything in your life that you've not been talking to God about that you know you should have talked to God about and you haven't done it yet? Now here's what you're going to do. You're going to talk to God about it. You're going to get that stuff. No man carries something in his conscience that's that burden. You need to get out and get over to the Lord. Number five, is there anyone, if you don't make it till next week, that you've never told them about Jesus, but they mean the world to you? You better go tell them about Jesus, buddy. Whether they accept it or not, you go tell them about it. You go plant that seed of the gospel. And when you say, man, that's just all sobering stuff. I think if you don't do stuff like this, you're not really ready to live. You're going to live in a very cowardice way. You're going to go through pandemics scared to death that you will face death. And I'm telling you, if you put your things in order... There's a freeing of this, and there's a beauty to know that I'm free to live my life. I'm telling you, that's the best pastoral wisdom. In fact, when I talked about writing your documents, some guys will even say, go ahead and plan your service. It stresses people out for them to think about what kind of service you really wanted to have. Pick some music. Do some things. I would love to come to your house when it's time for me to comfort your family and for them to go, well... This is what Mike put together. This is what he wanted. And for us to sit there and think about it, because I'm going to tell you, it's going to be tough. It is tough when we lose someone. But I also believe we should do these things to remind ourselves that death has no sting. Death has no victory. Jesus defeated death hell and the grave. And those of us who are are in Him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Can I ask you a question? If you were to pass away today, do you have an assurance you'd be present with the Lord? 
Have you settled that in your soul? You say, man, what do I need to do to do that? You need to know that you've made a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. Not just, you know, the good man upstairs, his country music songs. I love the Garth Brooks concert. He sings one song about prayer and the whole stadium's got their phones out. There's this nostalgia. The best prayers are unanswered prayers. And everybody's all like singing it like religion just flooded the soul. And here's what happens. Everyone in the South gets this idea of the good old boy religion. That's what I call it. The good old boy. You just live a good old life. And when you die one day, if you're a good old boy, Jesus don't send good old boys to hell. I'll tell you that. And I'm here to tell you, it grieves God because 2 Peter 3.9 says He's not wishing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. But even Jesus says in Matthew 7 Himself, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Many will come to me on that day and say, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do all these works in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. This is what he says will happen. Has there been a time in your life, man, this is the most loving thing you could ever hear. You are going to die. And if you don't have your faith in Christ, you are standing as a condemned man now, not then, now. And I'm telling you, Christ came so that this would not be the case. Christ came so that when we would would come before God, if there was really a day where this happens, because I was asked this on an FCA application to be involved in some things with coaching and ministering to coaches at Southside High School, and they said this question, if, if you were to get to heaven and somebody came out and asked you, why should I let you in? Like, what would you say? I, I don't think that's going to happen. But if, if you did, what, he says, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? And I clearly put it in one sentence. Because I asked you on January 20th, of 1999 to be my personal Lord and Savior. That's it. There's nothing else. Because I knew you then. And you've revealed yourself to me. And as the hymnist says, you have proven yourself to me over and over and over. You have shown me your glory, God, over and over and over. You have comforted me in my lowest moments, God, over and over and over. You have encouraged me when somebody had no idea that I needed encouragement because you did this over and over and over. It's a relationship with God. Here's the deal. You would know if you had it. So if you don't have it, here's what I would tell you. And you go, man, that's my heart. That's what I want. That's what I desire. Then come to him in prayer. The scripture tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do? We say, Lord, I realize that apart from you, there really is no life. Apart from you, God, I know I stand condemned in my sin, but I thank you, Lord, that you took my condemnation on that cross. And the best I know how, I trust you with my life, Lord, because you're the giver of life. I want you to be my personal Savior and Lord. You're the boss. You call the shots. I love you and I want to follow you. You don't remember those words? You don't even have to. The best prayers I ever counsel someone to pray is their own prayer. You know what God will answer? God, save me. 
You need to have that moment where you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and with your mouth you confess that he is Lord. And if you've never done that, listen, that is so quintessential. This, 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 this guy that he knows and he loves, yes, he loves him. Yes, he cares for him. Yes, he is delaying. But God's delays, and someone needs to hear this today, so I pray you listen to me. God's delays are not denials. Thank you. God's delays are not God's denials. He is not going to deny Lazarus of what he has wanted to do in Lazarus' life. He's just putting it on his timetable. And some believers need to hear that today. Don't give up. Don't quit. Walk through this. And you go, well, I don't know where Jesus is in this. Then you just need to abide with him and stick to him closer. But listen, God's plans and purposes happen and prevail. He has conquered death all those who believe in Him will be present with Him. And one day, they will be with Him in a resurrected, glorified body. And if we don't believe that, your faith is useless. It really is. But I think you, I'm thankful that I, it's not useless. It is useful to me. The scriptures tell us we should encourage us in this way. Let's pray. Father, there's someone here today that needs to know You. Lord, they've tried to be a good person, but that doesn't seem to be fulfilling. God, I pray that they would realize you're not calling us to live a good life. You're calling us to live a Godward life. You have reached down to us, Lord, through your Son. And I pray that if there's someone that hears this recording or, or is here in person or is watching online, Lord, that they don't know you, that they would not go on living life ignoring you but they would see you, Lord, for who you really are. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal your glory to them so that as they would have an encounter with you, just like I did, just like the people in Scriptures, they would encounter you and who you really are and they would, they would surrender and fall into your arms of love. So, Lord, I pray for, for those that need you in that way. But, Lord, also I pray for believers who are going through things in life and they wonder where you are. And Lord, I just think about your delay in this text, but you're not denying Lazarus of this thing. And so Lord, I just pray you'd forgive us for when we've given up on prayer about something. Lord, maybe we would repent from that today and renew ourselves to pray again. That we would stick to you and realize that your no's lead to a greater yes. That we'd have our hearts open again. Lord, I feel like there could be some believers in here that have encountered things in their life and it didn't work out the way they thought it would, when they thought it would, and it's really hurt this communication with you. God, I pray they would open up their heart again. They would say, Lord, I'm sorry for closing my heart off. They would experience a renewal that your spirit can bring to them. A peace. God, I pray that when you delay, we would understand you are still actively, sovereignly reigning and ruling. And you have a reason. We may never understand it. As Isaiah said, your thoughts are not our thoughts, God. Your ways are not our ways. Lord, let us fall in faith and trust to seek your presence more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.